Our speaker this morning is Copthorne McDonald. He's a writer, independent scholar, former systems engineer. He uh, has written three books that deal with the aspects of wisdom, but actually a total of seven books altogether, and over 130 articles, reviews, and columns. He's going to speak to us this morning on uh, personal and societal wisdom, some thoughts on their nature and development. Please welcome Copthorne McDonald. Thank you, Gretchen, for that fine introduction. And I really appreciated the earlier reading from, I guess, the Book of Wisdom, Solomon. And uh, I, I was not familiar with that, and I really enjoyed that a lot. It's great to be here. This morning, I want to share with you some thoughts about the nature and development of personal wisdom and its offshoot sociocultural wisdom. There will be some overlap between this talk and the longer one I'll be giving on Wednesday evening at Rollins College. Should you be interested in the role that colleges and universities could play in wisdom development, you might also want to attend that talk. Uh, I won't be getting into that subject today. Let's start with personal wisdom. At every moment in our lives, we face some real-life situation, some fact-based reality. But what do those facts mean, and what's the best thing to do about them? Wisdom answers the meaning question by looking at the situation from a variety of helpful perspectives. It answers the action question by bringing wise values into the decision-making process. There are many of these helpful perspectives or wise ways of seeing. There are also many wise values. In wise people, these basic building blocks of wisdom combine in various ways to create an array of wise attitudes and wise ways of being. And because the mix of characteristics differs from person to person, each wise person's wisdom has a distinctive character or flavor. A key point is that personal wisdom is internal, embodied by persons. Words of wisdom arise from it. Wise behavior arises from it. Sociocultural wisdom arises from it. But wisdom itself is not its products. Rather, it is a mode of cognition, one that couples relevant intellectual knowledge with some important perspectives, interpretations, and values. Wisdom is a kind of meta-knowledge that helps us make better sense of the rest of our knowledge. Aristotle differentiated between two varieties of wisdom, one having a practical, everyday life focus, the other an existential, metaphysical focus. I would add a third variety, wisdom that has an activist, change-the-world focus. Life-centered wisdom is an information processing modality in which everyday situations are evaluated from multiple perspectives, multiple contextual points of view. Howard Gardner wrote, the defining characteristic of wisdom is the breadth of considerations taken into account when rendering a judgment, 
or recommending a course of action. Common evaluative contexts include the pragmatic, will this work? What are the consequences? Does this fit with my goals? Is this part of the problem or part of the solution? Does this represent excellence? Is action needed or not needed? And there are many others, including a variety of ethics, morality, and justice-related contexts. Big-picture existential wisdom is a variety that Eastern spiritual practices help to develop. Rational evaluation still plays a role in this form of wisdom, but rationality is not enough. And that's because the goal is insight into both the informational aspect of reality, that is, form and appearance, and the non-informational aspect, being, spirit, energy, awareness. Eastern practices develop and harness the psychological modalities of intuition and identification. These modes of cognition potentially allow us to see beyond the transient to the eternal, beyond maya to brahman, beyond form to the carrier of form. Activist wisdom starts with the well-developed foundation of personal wisdom. But the wise person who wants to change the world adds to that foundation an intellectual and experiential understanding of the world situation. Through reading and direct experience, they explore the world problematique, that matrix of interconnected problems the world faces. Wise activists then focus on some limited part of it and devote their time, energy, and wisdom to changing it for the better. The embracing of high or superior values is a hallmark of wisdom. High values have two roles in the lives of wise people. First, they can provide illuminating slants on the data of life. Second, they guide the decision-making process toward wiser decisions. Brain processes and their values work together to make our decisions and control our behavior in much the same way that a computer's hardware and software work together to make the computer's decisions and control its outputs. The brain is the hardware of our behavioral control system. The elements in red constitute the heart of the software. They work together to make our decisions. Information about the immediate situation is presented to the brain by our senses. The brain also has access to memories of other situations and other decisions, as well as previously acquired knowledge and perspectives. At the heart of the process is our hierarchy of internalized values. In ways we don't yet understand, the brain takes these informational elements and arrives at a response to the situation, a decision to act in some particular way or not to act at all. Playing a central role in all this are the values. Roger Sperry, who uh, you may recall won a Nobel Prize for his split brain research, put it this way. Human values can be viewed objectively as universal determinants in all human decision-making. All decisions boil down to a choice among alternatives of what is most valued, for whatever reasons, and are determined by the particular value system that prevails. I would add a corollary. Superior values, the values of the wise, produce superior decisions and superior behavior. What are those superior values? 
There are many lists, and on the wisdom page section of my uh, cop.com website, there's a document that contains several of them. Here we're going to look at just one. The self-actualizing and ego-transcending people that Abraham Maslow studied were wise people. And Maslow's reports on their behavior and mindsets tell us a lot about the nature of wisdom and the values that underlie it. Maslow's self-actualizers focused on concerns outside of themselves. They liked solitude and privacy more than the average person. And they tended to be more detached than ordinary from the expectations and dictates of their culture. They were interdirected people. They were creative too and appreciated the world around them with a sense of awe and wonder. In love relationships, they respected the other's individuality and felt joy at the other's successes. They gave more love than most people and needed less. On the screen is a set of values that were central to their lives. Maslow called them the being values or B values. Early this morning, Alan Nordstrom sent me a poem which fits very nicely here. He, he attributed it to a poet named Barnaby Googe, and the poem is entitled Wisdom. What is this thing we wisdom call? An act it is, no thing at all. To choose to do that which will bring the happiest of everything to everyone is wisdom's aim. That we do not is our shame. A final word about values before we move on. In my comments about values, I've been referring to a person's deep-down internalized operational values. These are not necessarily the same as a person's professed values. The internalized values reveal themselves in behavior. The professed values may only be there in words. To understand what values are really in control, we can work back from behavior, our own behavior and that of other people. Pleasing to us or not, there it is. Let's switch our attention down to sociocultural wisdom. Societal institutions, corporations, political systems, economies, NGOs are purposeful entities. They exist to perform certain functions and behave in certain ways. And that behavior is directed by values. Those values are typically a combination of the personal values of the people who created the institutions in the first place, the values of the people who currently run them, and values imposed from outside, such as laws enacted by governments and the interpretation of those laws by courts. Some institutions were imbued with wise values at their founding, but were co-opted later. Among the drafters of the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights were some very wise people, and that wisdom was reflected in the governmental structures that they created. But they couldn't anticipate every possible happening or build into the Constitution every possible protection. As early as the 1860s, Lincoln warned about the control that big money could exert over the government, as has clearly happened in the years since then. Economies are another example. 
economies were created as societal subsystems to provision people. Group A had more of some good than it needed, and it traded the excess to Group B for a different good. The provisioning function hasn't disappeared, but today's economies and their institutions have superimposed other purposes on top of the original one. Making a lot of money for a small group of people has become the primary purpose. Benefits to society are secondary. The economic tail now wags the societal dog. It doesn't have to be this way. Governments can be configured to serve the many instead of the few, and the original purpose of economies can be restored. In my view, a wisdom-based society would be one in which many of the high values that guide the lives of wise people would also guide society's institutions. Among those values would be truth, honesty, justice, cooperation, peace, compassion, universal well-being, creativity, and comprehensive knowledge. These values would be implanted into institutional systems in ways that ensured as far as possible, wise institutional behavior. And there would be safeguards in place to ensure that those values would be maintained on into the future. We're going to move shortly to the development of personal wisdom, but first I'd like to touch on the back-and-forth relationship between the personal and the societal. It starts with personal wisdom. If a societal institution ends up being guided by wise values, it is almost certain, certainly because wise people designed them in. So there is a creative movement from wise people to wise institutions. But it also works in the other direction. Wise societal institutions support and encourage the development of wisdom in individuals. I mean, we've got a situation where we, everybody starts from zip. You know, we, we just, the wisdom is that we end up with at the end of our life is built gradually over, over the length of time. And everybody starts out from a pace of relative unwisdom. Our institutions, however, can carry it, their wisdom on from generation to generation. And if we, had a wiser society, they could support and foster the development of wisdom earlier on in people's lives. If we want to become wiser people, we can develop the characteristics of wisdom, the relative perspectives, or excuse me, relevant perspectives, values, and intellectual knowledge, and incorporate them into our lives. We, we can do this on purpose, we just don't have to wait to see if it happens. We'll look now at some tools to help us do that. This talk is a brief introduction to the subject of wisdom. Back in 1995, I started the wisdom page at www.cop.com. And if you're interested in digging further into the subject, uh, there you can find links to many free resources concerning wisdom as well as information about helpful books, audio, and video materials. Becoming a wiser person is an exercise in inner development, and there are activities that can help us along the way. Counseling and other forms of psychotherapy can, if we need them, help us reach the starting point for more advanced work 
which we might call responsible adulthood or mature ego. person at this stage is free of psychoses and crippling neuroses and has developed emotional control and empathy to an ordinary degree. So I'm sure you know there are many forms of therapy, including life management counseling, therapies to help us get over fears, ones that help us manage anger, others that help us get over compulsions and addictions, and still, still more. <clears throat> Reading about inner development can be very helpful for anyone who wants to become wiser. To go beyond normal, healthy adulthood, that starting point for advanced work, many people turn to writings that discuss the further reaches of human development. Such writings, in turn, lead us to do-it-yourself practices, mind-quieting practices, self-knowledge practices, ego-transcending practices, and oneness realization practices. Reading about these things can help us understand them and perhaps motivate us to try them, but reading is not a substitute for the practices themselves. Novels and biographies are valuable resources for the development of practical wisdom because they present us with countless examples of wise and unwise behavior, skillful and unskillful handling of life situations. Biographies of wise people can be especially helpful. How does their behavior differ from ordinary? What values guide their lives? What perspectives and interpretations of lives, life situations have they made use of? For those who would like to develop existential, metaphysical, spiritual wisdom, the world's spiritual literature is obviously a vital intellectual resource. There is also an extensive literature on specific go-see-for-yourself spiritual practices, practices that take the practitioner to deeper levels of understanding than reading ever can. Also helpful in developing the big picture view are books that deal with the nature of mental and physical reality, the cosmos and evolution. If we want to be effective change agents, then we need to select resources relevant to the kinds of change we are trying to bring about. Among the possibilities are the new disciplines, including the sciences of complexity, cosmos-wide evolution, and the human brain-mind system. Important for many would be learning more about human cultures, economic systems, and the biosphere. Of general importance is an understanding of ethics and techniques for changing ethical perspectives. Probability is a decision-making tool. The techniques of conflict resolution and effective persuasion and information on current transformational activities. If we are open to learning, life itself teaches us. Having many and varied life experiences obviously teaches us more. We not only need to structure our life so that we have many kinds of experience, but we also need an open, curious, inquisitive, appreciative mental stance so that we get the most out of whatever experiences we have. Travel, getting to know people with different skills, outlooks, and values, engaging in different kinds of work, taking up a variety of hobbies. All these things enrich our life and potentially take us further down the wisdom development path. 
hanging out with people who are already living the values we'd like to make our own can be most helpful. Where do we find such people? Right here, for one thing. Groups that focus on personal growth and doing good in the world, groups such as Unitarian Universalists, Quakers, and Buddhists, are, in my view, a best bet. Local and online discussion and activist groups are another possibility. Some of these focus on psychological or spiritual growth. Others focus on various social issues. We can experiment, and when we find groups that feel right, get involved. People all around us are struggling to up-level their lives, some skillfully and successfully, others very unskillfully and unsuccessfully. The world's literature and films present us with countless additional life stories. What can we learn from them? Can we pick out strategies and behaviors that work and those that don't? Can we start to sense some general laws of life behind the specifics? And can we learn to pay attention to our own behavior and become aware of the underlying values? Becoming clear about the values we would like at the center of our lives, the values we want to make truly our own in a deep and powerful way, is the first step. The challenge then is to move these values from our head to our guts. In psychological terms, we must internalize them so that they are not merely nice thoughts, but actually guide our behavior. Doing this takes effort, and during one of his trips to North America, the Dalai Lama gave an example of what we need to do. He spoke to an audience about the need for everyone to internalize that key value of wisdom, compassion. His advice to those who wanted to develop compassion was to put themselves in challenging situations and then, despite the natural reluctance to do so, behave compassionately. By making the effort to engage in value-based action again and again and again, we eventually internalize the value. Expressing the value in action gradually takes less and less effort until it becomes part of our outlook, part of our natural way of being, part of who we are. In our culture, we fill our waking hours with discursive thinking. We think about the past, think about the future, we plan, we solve problems. Wisdom, however, demands that we spend a lot of time paying attention to what's happening in our immediate situation. Body awareness practices such as Hatha Yoga, Tai Chi, Vipassana meditation, and even many sports can help us break the mind-tripping habit. The last tool I'll mention, though definitely not the least, is meditation. In fact, meditation is generally considered to be the most powerful single tool for developing wisdom. Psychologist Jane Lovinger's research produced a nine-stage scale of psychological development. The terms she used for the two highest stages are autonomous and integrated. It turns out that less than 2% of the general adult population have managed to reach these two top categories. However, for people who have had a meditation practice going for several years, 
the number is 38 percent. Meditation retreats of seven to ten days duration are especially helpful. This graphic may help get the idea across. At the left, we have the noisy mind situation. Pure quiet awareness is there as the substrate of the mind, but it is modulated by a lot of high-intensity information, thoughts, sensations, emotions, etc., much mind content. At the right, the graphic depicts the, the quiet mind. This is not sleep. The person is highly alert and aware, but the quantity and intensity of mental information is way down. The transitional slope between one state and the other depicts what happens during the first three or four days of a meditation retreat. The key to going from a noisy mind to a quiet mind is paying attention to something subtle. Why? Simply because we can't think discursively and pay close attention at the same time. If we try to tell ourselves to stop thinking, forget it, it's not going to work. But we can do this alternative thing, which is to pay attention and then gradually, slowly, the, the mind gets more quiet. It turns out that if we spend several days paying attention to subtle bodily sensations like those arising in the nostrils when we breathe, those arising in feet and legs when we walk, the mind gradually shifts from habitual noisiness to habitual quietude. usually takes three or four days of diligent morning-to-night effort in a supportive environment in order to do this. But once you've entered the quiet mind mode, interesting things start to happen. For one thing, you have become more sensitive to your surroundings. With the mind quiet, many people find themselves looking at the natural world around them with a new sense of wonder. And insights may arise about our relationship to nature and the cosmos. Know thyself, said the Greeks. And when the mind is quiet, that begins to happen in a serious way. Normally, we identify strongly with the busy, buzzy mind content that constitutes the melodrama of our life. We see this unfolding informational story as me. When the mind is quiet, however, we have a certain detachment. We are no longer overwhelmed by massive amounts of mind content and are not so identified with what remains. We begin to see how our mind works and may eventually get a glimpse of who I really am. The quiet mind also opens the door to the subconscious. Mental quiet thins the barrier that exists between conscious and subconscious mental processes. Messages from our subconscious are better able to bubble up into consciousness. We may start to see things about ourselves that we were never conscious of before, things that we've been pushing out of awareness. Improved creativity is another benefit of quieting the mind. Under quiet mind conditions, the intuitive processes, creative muse is able to communicate effectively with the intellect and the global workspace of the mind. The number of aha and eureka experiences goes up. This is not too surprising when we think of the number of 
artists and writers who find solitude essential for significant work. Another plus, when the mind is quiet, insightful shifts of perspective can occur. We suddenly apply a new interpretive framework to the same old facts and see things in a dramatically different way. I discuss still more benefits of meditation in my books Toward Wisdom and Matters of Consequence, and I've put some of this information online. The Wisdom page also has links to information concerning meditation retreats. Thank you all for being so attentive, and if you have questions, I guess now's the time. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, thank you. I have two questions, but I'll out of respect, I'll just ask one. <laughs> Do you find that wise people that you've studied or read about, or perhaps even in your own experience, are by and large happier? Ab- absolutely. Uh, there was. I didn't mention it here. I will be mentioning it in the the Rollins talk. But for a long time, there were no real studies of wisdom. Wisdom was like, you know, off everybody's radar, including the philosophers and, you know, scholars and institutions. But since 1980, there have been uh, a number of scholarly studies of of meditation, and one which was done by a woman psychologist at the University of Florida. Uh, Her last name, I think, is Ardelt. And uh, she was dealing with older women, and she developed an instrument to try to measure wisdom, which is another whole whole big problem that academia is dealing with at the moment, you know, who, who is wise and who isn't wise. But anyway, assuming her her testing scheme had, had some validity, she found that the correlation with life satisfaction for these older women was the greatest for the greatest correlation was with wisdom uh, was greater than uh, material well-being or even health so uh, I mean I guess that's my answer to your question and uh, you know as I've tried to move along this this path I, I mean I think there is a place particularly if you follow the some of the Eastern practices where you realize that our happiness is not we're taught that it's dependent on externals and you know you get get stuff and get wealthy and all this kind of stuff and then you're you're happy but there is a deep kind of joy that uh, and you know fundamental happiness that you can find the place. I mean, it's right there in that awareness thing. And if you can sort of get rid of the crap, you know, and, and get get down to that area, you can realize this is this is a very very nice place to be. And you, you it's always there to go to, you know. And um, this, you know, this is something we 
we're not taught in our culture and you sort of have to, you know, go out and try to find it for yourself. But there's, um, there's a way to, to live, live with a kind of inner joy that, uh, just doesn't depend on that external stuff at all or health or anything else, you know, it trans- transcends this, the informational circumstances of our life. Yes. One word uh, that I noticed was missing maybe from your talk, and I'm a little curious, and that is mythology um, associated with wisdom. Now, Unitarians tend, I think, uh, I shouldn't generalize too much, maybe the group that I've met here tend to dismiss and run from mythologies. They've had enough of it in some of the churches that they've belonged to in the past. They see it as hocus-pocus stuff that, you know, we just don't want to deal with here. We want to deal with facts. We want to deal with rationality. Those are the important things. And yet, one of our Unitarian ministers, uh, Connie Barlow, uh, has written a book, Green Space, Green Time, and she has interviewed numerous scientists. And one of the uh, conclusions that they've come to, or one of the things they've stated, is that when a, a person like you, or her, or a person of scholarship and academia speaks to uh, an audience about wisdom, an audience perhaps not as sophisticated, the communication sometimes falls off without the use of metaphor and without the intervention of mythologies because those Large words, let's say, uh, sophisticated uh, talk, philosophical concepts, and so on, are hard perhaps for maybe a Midwest farmer to grasp. So what role, uh, and Alan knows that very well, who's here, so uh, certainly uh, through his poetry, I think he tries to reach such a variety of people. What place does mythology have (coughs) in wisdom talk? Story, or storytelling, right? What place does the story have in communicating wisdom? Well, uh, you know, it's really an excellent question, and the you know the farmer in the Midwest um, may find the mythology in his local church answers his need, and the. Um, you know the sermons to try to be more loving and caring and so forth may be what resonates with him and is able to move forward. Um, Joseph Campbell, who I'm sure you all know know about, um, and oh, sorry, sorry, um, Joseph Campbell, uh, who's famous book, The uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, The Hero's Journey. Uh, Feels that all this great mythology, which he he talks, talks about in those books, that these stories are all heading towards the deepest kind of spiritual understanding, that they're all metaphors of this this path 
to identification with the all or the one. Uh, and I can remember him talking about those those who make it live in the the green fields of joy or something like that. He, he had some very poetic expression, which I've, I've forgotten. But um, And there is an attempt to, by some people such as, as Brian Swim, to uh, use the creation of the universe and the earth, the whole evolutionary process, as a new mythology that would have great benefits for for humanity if we can identify with this this larger process then maybe we'll stop being so stupid (laughs) anyway those are about I, I mean aside from from trying to understand what's been going on and and using that as my guiding Guiding myth, uh, you know, I'm not drawn to any of the any particular myth. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think there's a, a okay, okay. Well, hey, hey, whoever's got <laughs> yeah, the golden rule. The guy with the gold makes the rules. The guy with the mic talks. Yeah. <laughs> I usually am too literal, but I refer to your graph that showed the chaotic mind coming straight lining coming on the graph straight lining does the uh, <coughs> quiet mind <coughs> I think a higher power is intervening <laughs> I think it's the devil does the, does the quiet mind ever become chaotic again <laughs> uh, abs- absolutely this um I, I spoke of mind, mind habits, and um, our culture reinforces the habit of the noisy mind. If we go go on a meditation retreat of seven or ten ten days, we can approach this this quiet mind state. And uh, I did one retreat of three months, and my mind got more requi- more quiet uh, toward the end of that than at the end of a seven-day retreat. But um, when we come back into the ordinary world again, yes, the mind gets noisy. But uh, let me make a couple of comments. We, first of all, Close to the mic I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I said I didn't need it to be wired, but hey, you gotta hang in here. Um, the when you come back from a retreat, it's a very interesting experience because you see the noisiness that other people are experiencing. The the chaos of everyday life. The you just see a lot of really interesting stuff that you you never were aware of before you you went away on one of these retreats, and so that that gives you more insight into everyday life. And there's some aspects of it you may decide that you don't you'd rather keep out of your own life. You know? And uh, um, also. Uh, 
I've found and many other people have found that uh, just one retreat can sort of open a door to make you want to do more. Uh, that the experience is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult um, paying for that three or four days at the beginning of a retreat. I mean, you're, you're trying to pay attention to, let's say, the sensations of the breath, but, you know, you may get three breaths and your mind goes off in thought. But that, So the whole, for that three or four days, you're constantly having to bring the attention back back to those subtle sensations. And, and that's not fun. I mean, after my first retreat, I said it was the hardest thing I ever did, but the most rewarding. <laughs> so it's it's hard work, and I've, I've, I've done many after that. And... Uh, um, anyway, what what other questions do we have? One more question. Steve. You're going to stick around and do some book signing afterwards, so we'll take the one question now. We always got the mic. In. Yeah. I'd... Steve asked you to relate <clears throat> your talk to mythology, and I certainly think that's appropriate because when you talk about the hero's journey, it is, after all, a journey for uh, into the inner mind and to self-realization and that kind of thing. But I would also wonder about the fact that you might want to relate your talk to the lives of some of the great mystics because, after all, achieving the quiet mind is, uh, is what mysticism attempts to do. Absolutely. And the mystic, of course, is trying to find some identification with what you might call of the great whole of reality or oneness or something of that kind. <clears throat> and finally, it seems to me that uh, Henry David Thoreau is being recognized more and more every day for something that he taught us which we haven't really fully understood yet. Many people regard Thoreau as a kind of crank who lived off to himself on some land that was owned by Emerson and so forth. But uh, uh, I think Thoreau has a great deal to teach us about uh, divesting ourselves of those distractions of daily life, which you've talked so much about, which is absolutely necessary to achieving any kind of quiet mind. And there is a very excellent article in the latest issue of Harper's. Uh, the word disobedience is in the title, uh, and it has to do with Thoreau, not only in regard to his mystical uh, model that he set for us, but also his concept of our being disobedient to those things in this life which we don't want to have any part of. For example, he says, you may not do this in my name. He's talking about such things as the Iraq War. You may not do this in my name, and I will, I will remove myself from this society in order not to be a part of that. Yeah, very, very interesting comments. And uh, there are, we all know people who have, or I certainly know people who have made those kinds of life decisions and just, but I think that's, Part and parcel of this this advancement in wisdom, however we do it, to get to a point where Thoreau was, where he saw 
let's call it evil or unskillfulness, societal unskillfulness or whatever we want to call it. And, and so thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>